Thanks for listening to the weekend message from Abundant Life Church. Most weeks on the podcast, you'll hear teaching from our lead pastor, Jeremy Jernigan. We have campuses in Oregon and Washington and are committed to giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. Find out more about Abundant Life Church at alcpnw.com. Well, welcome to Abundant Life Church. My name is David Grigg, and I'm the pastor of groups here at Abundant Life. And whether you're joining us in Happy Valley or Vancouver or Sandy or online or even listening on a podcast, we're so excited that you're a part of this with us today. Um, This week, we're continuing a series uh, that we're doing this summer called Summer Playlist, where we're looking at secular music and seeing if there's some truth that we can find in these songs that God would want to address in our lives. What would he want to say? Uh, We're recognizing that what we typically label as Christian isn't the only source of truth that we can find, and what we label as secular isn't void of uh, truth as well. So if you want to join me, you can turn in your journals to week three, um, and if you have a physical analog Bible with you or an app on your phone, we're going to be in Psalm 88, and you can turn there with us, uh, join us there. Now, you probably don't know this about me, but in junior high and high school, I was a bit of a punk, and, and I don't mean that to say that I was rude or disrespectful, although that's probably also true. Uh, what I mean to say is I was obsessed with punk rock and that culture and that scene, and I think we have some pictures here. Um, that's been, uh, you don't have to laugh that much, but... Um, no, but uh, this is junior high, high school, and I had the hair. You can't see it, but I had the super skinny jeans, and I bought all the albums, and I was even in a garage band for a short time. We practiced in my parents' basement. We played one awesome show, and then we retired. We decided <laughs> we wanted to end our career on our own terms, you know? Um, <laughs> now, uh, as I've looked back, as I've reflected on this uh, stage, this phase of my life, uh, I realized that I saw myself as a bit of a misfit. Like, I didn't fit here, I didn't fit there. I saw myself as very unique. And I saw punk music as a way to celebrate that uniqueness, because that's one of those major themes, right? Like, like, I'm different, and that's awesome, and now you just have to deal with me. Like, really, that's, that's punk rock in a nutshell. Um, and so I love I loved the opportunity to celebrate what I saw in myself as being unique. Uh, and in my opinion, no band was better at celebrating uniqueness, pushing back on that status quo uh, than Green Day, the band that every punk listened to, but nobody admitted listening to, right? It's kind of like the McDonald's of, of punk rock, where like McDonald's, nobody talks about eating at McDonald's, but somehow they're selling millions of burgers, and I think the same with, with Green Day, right? Nobody talks about listening to Green Day, but somehow they're selling millions of albums. There's something not connecting here. Now, Green Day's most famous album uh, was American Idiot. And that album came out just two weeks after my 13th birthday. And I vividly remember taking my, my birthday money and begging my mom to drive me to Borders Books, shout out to Borders Books, and <laughs> buying that shiny new plastic-sealed impossible-to-open CD and then getting home and popping that in my stereo system that was way too big for a bedroom. I can be honest about that now. Uh, and rocking out to what, is now, what was my, my new favorite album for a time. And as I'm headbanging and, and, and celebrating how awesome this album is, all of a sudden the music slows down and it gets a little bit quieter and I hear the opening lines of Boulevard of Broken Dreams. It says this, I walk a lonely road, the only one I have ever known. Don't know where it goes, but it's only me and I walk alone. 
And as I heard this, I recognized myself, probably for the very first time, my own deep sense of loneliness. That in my desire to, to celebrate my uniqueness, I was actually desiring to cover up my feeling of being alone. If I could keep the party going, if I could keep the music cranked loud enough, I, I could ignore, I wouldn't have to deal with my sense of feeling alone. And in a very real way, this song changed my approach to life. I was able to really recognize what I was actually feeling, what I was actually dealing with. And I, I shifted. I stopped going to the church that I grew up in because I felt lost in the crowd. I didn't feel like anyone knew me. And I literally started walking down the street to a church in my neighborhood. Um, that It was a small church, but everyone wanted to know me. Uh, it was a community that I could feel a part of. And I was still a punk. Like, I, I recognize that. That's a phase that my mom, even my wife, would probably tell you that went on a bit too long. Uh, but... <laughs> But I was a punk on, on a mission to find community, to find that connection, to be known. And I think that goes uh, beyond me. I don't think that's just a, a, an experience that I had. Uh, in fact, a research organization called YouGov just three weeks ago released a new study on loneliness. And you're seeing more and more of these studies coming out, but this is the most recent one. Uh, so in July of 2019, they released a, a generational study and it looked at millennials and Gen Xers and baby boomers, and they totally ignored uh, Generation Z. So if that's you, I'm sorry, they're not showing you the love. I got love for you, um, but not them, I guess. Um, but I wanna share with you some of their findings, because uh, I think it's, it's pretty enlightening when we're looking at this issue of loneliness. The first, one in five millennials reported having no friends. And if you want to put that in perspective for a millennial, if that's you in the room, if you're my people, that's like one in five of the Spice Girls just isn't feeling the love, right? Um, but I want, I want to look at the gravity of this statement, that one in five millennials reported having no friends. To me, that says you could have hundreds of Facebook friends and Instagram followers and Twitter followers and still not have anyone that you could name as an actual friend. And that's alarming to me. And in case you think this is just a millennial problem or it's up and coming, maybe it's related to technology, I want to point to some of their uh, statistics that come from all generations across the board. Uh, so first of all, one in four reported having no best friends. Because I think it's a little bit more normal for, for baby boomers to be social, right? To have acquaintances and friends and a network. But even boomers reported one in four having no best friends. Uh, so, so we can have these acquaintances and friends, but nobody close enough, no deep relationships where we would say that they're my best friend. And secondly, one in five reported that they always or often feel lonely. They always or often feel lonely. And we start to see this is a bigger issue. That this is a more important issue. That this is vital. Uh, last year in the United Kingdom, uh, 2018, they appointed a minister of loneliness to the government. It's an actual government position to address this issue, saying this is important enough, we need someone focused on this. And so this isn't a millennial issue, this isn't a domestic issue, this isn't up and coming, it's something that we are uncovering, that we're discovering in our culture around the world. And, and, and since this is a human issue, I want to kind of draw this out uh, when it comes to the Bible. We're going to look at Psalm 88, if you're there with me. This isn't a psalm of David. Uh, it's another psalmist. Uh, but it's a psalm of lament. 
And so in case you're looking for a happy ending or at some point for this to turn around, it's really not going to. It's, it's a psalm. It's a psalm of lament. It's not, it's not one of praise. It's not uh, uplifting, but it's an honest portrayal of emotion. It starts like this, verse one. Lord, you are God, uh, you are the God who saves me. Day and night, I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. This is the psalmist crying out to God for help, saying that something's not right. I, I'm not in a good place. God, will you help me? But then something changes. And if you want to skip down to verse eight, it says this. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. See, this is where it turns from, I'm hurting, God, will you help me? To you did this. That God, if you control everything, if you're in charge of everything, and I am in this place, do you even care? Or even further, did you do this? And then we skip to verse 14. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me all day long. They surround me like a flood, and they have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. And then pay attention to this last line. Darkness is my closest friend. See, to me, that sounds very familiar, specifically because our song for today, Boulevard of Broken Dreams, there's a driving line, the opening line of the chorus that says this, my shadow is the only one that walks beside me. Darkness is my closest friend. My shallow heart is the only thing that's beating. Sometimes I wish someone out there would find me. But till then, I walk alone. Darkness is my closest friend. You see, Psalm 88 is a psalm of lament. Boulevard of Broken Dreams is a song of lament. It's saying, honestly, this is where I am. This is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm experiencing. Billy Joe Armstrong, the lead singer and frontman of Green Day, went on a bit of a personal retreat as he was developing his ideas for the album, American Idiot. He went to the boroughs of New York City, and he recorded that as, as he was walking along the sidewalks of New York City, he was surrounded by multitudes of people, and yet no one was talking to each other, no one was looking at each other, no one was acknowledging one another. He realized that you could be among hundreds of people and still feel totally alone. And this is when he began writing Boulevard of Broken Dreams. And can't you relate to that feeling? That feeling of being around people. Maybe at work, at school, maybe in this room. You're around a lot of people right now. And yet feeling like no one is with you. That you're not with anyone. And we start to think that no one knows what I'm going through. No one understands. Or maybe everyone else has it easier than me. Or maybe people are going through difficult things. I see so much pain and I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. And so I'm just gonna step back. You see, our thoughts of loneliness are often comparative. It's worse. It's easier. It's better. We use this comparative language. And comparing our pain causes us to distance ourselves from others. It's one more thing that we label as unique. 
that no one knows what I'm going through or I don't know what they're going through. And so we're just not going to connect. And then we may start on this search for people that experience pain identical to us, right? That we're looking like, you suffered the same thing, or this group is dealing with the same thing, and we start this pursuit of finding people with the exact same pain as us, and then when we don't find that, we can fall deeper and deeper into that state of loneliness. Because the reality is that no one actually knows what you're going through. That's a true statement. Because we experience pain uniquely. Four years ago, I, uh, my father passed away. And as I was processing that loss and how it was affecting me, my first urge, my first step was to find people that also lost their fathers. And that's kind of a natural step, right? Like hurting people should find hurting people that are dealing with the same thing. Uh, and then we end up with a lot of hurting people talking to hurting people. And sometimes it feels like a quarantine, right? Like if we get all the hurting people in one place, maybe they won't get their sad on everybody else. And I felt that guilt, right? Like, I am sad, but if I talk to somebody who's well, maybe I'll get my sad on them, and I don't want to do that. So I'm just going to stay back until I can find somebody else that's sad, and we'll be sad together. See, the reality is that no one knows your pain. Your pain is unique. No one knows it exactly. What I, what I found is that the people who brought most of the healing conversations to my life, most healing interactions, had never lost a parent, but were familiar with pain. And I want to be clear, I'm not discounting support groups, I'm not discounting recovery groups, those are super helpful. What I am saying, though, is we can't turn those into tucked away, hidden places of isolation. And also that if someone's only source of community is their support group, that's still an incredibly lonely place to be. Now, if we look at Galatians 6, uh, we, can, we can start to understand this idea a little bit better. Uh, this is a letter from Paul to the church of Galatia. It says this, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you'll fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they're something when they're not, they deceive themselves. For each should test their own actions. They can uh, then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. And, and we see a dichotomy here, right? Like, carry each other's burdens, or everyone should carry their own load. Like, which one is it, Paul? Like, this, these are opposites. What are you trying to say? And, and you see where we are all carrying our own load. That's the state we're already in. That your experience of pain is unique to you. I lost my dad, you lost your dad, but we're different people. You mourn differently than I mourn. You process differently than I process. We're at a different stage of life. Our experience is unique. So we have to learn to hold our own pain, to realize what am I actually experiencing? What am I feeling? I have to hold that. But we don't have to hold that alone that we can share each other's burdens. And you may be asking, how is that even possible? How can, I, how can I share someone else's pain? How can I share my pain? How do we share each other's burdens? And I believe that you have to know the difference between sympathy and empathy. And for that, I want you to check out an animated clip. This is a, a clip that was set to a, a lecture by Brene Brown. Check this out. Sympathy is saying that I feel bad for you. And that can be an honest response. I feel bad for you. But empathy is saying, I feel bad with you. 
You see, that costs us something. When you choose to show empathy, you're making a choice to, to be changed, to be transformed, to feel someone else's pain. In other words, empathy is saying, it's okay to not be okay. And let's pause there, right? It's saying, it's okay to not be okay. I don't need you to pull it together. I don't need you to stop crying. I don't need you to stop laughing. It's okay to be right where you are with me. And then I'm going to choose to not be okay with you. I'm gonna make that decision to enter in, to let myself be changed by your experience, to let myself be changed by your pain. And you don't have to have identical pain to do this, to show empathy. You just need to be willing to understand, to seek to understand and be affected by someone else's pain. Jerry Setzer uh, lost half of his family in a car accident, and he decided uh, years later to write about his own experience, specifically uh, as a member of a faith community, as a member of a, a church family. And as he wrote about his experience of loss, he said this, comforters must be prepared to let the pain of another become their own, and so let it transform them. They will never be the same after that decision. Their own world will be permanently altered by the presence of the one who suffers. Sitzer described this community, a community that chooses this, as a community of hope, a community of, of brokenness, right? Where, where we choose to rally around each other in our shared experience of pain rather than isolating ourselves, right? Rather than isolating over our pain, we choose to be drawn together by our shared experience of pain. It's a vulnerable place where you say, I don't have the answers, I don't have solutions. And also, I'm not gonna approach you with assumptions or judgments. I'm not gonna say, at least, or you should. I'm just gonna share your burden, if that's okay. And this is such a beautiful place to be where we can enter into somebody else's source of pain and not have to do anything, but just be there, but just be present. And Sitzer said of his own community of brokenness, this is beautiful, since they knew life would not be the same for me, they decided that it would not be the same for them either. And so we can join each other in our pain. We can reflect this empathy with one another. But you might be asking the same question as the psalmist from Psalm 88. And that is, if, if God is in charge, if he is in control of everything, then does he even care? if that's still happening to me? Or even did he do this? And so I wanna look at that. Uh, does God even care? Well, we're gonna go back to the beginning. If you look at, at Genesis, uh, God's in this cycle of creating and calling good, right? He creates the sun, moon, and the stars, and he calls them good. He creates the land, and he calls it good. He creates animals, and he calls them good. And what's the first thing that he says is not good? In Genesis 2, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. And then God creates Eve, and Adam and Eve become husband and wife, and we turn this into some beautiful, romantic story. But I want you to notice something, that God was not creating a solution for singleness. He was creating a solution for loneliness. And this is so vital for us to understand, because marriage is not an automatic solution to your loneliness. It's not a quick fix to your loneliness. In fact, research tells us that you are far more likely to feel alone when you're married than when you're not. 
And we start to see that marriage is not a substitute for a community of brokenness, a place where you can hold your pain and share it with another. So that's, we, that's God's main concern. We know that God's concern for loneliness. It was actually his first concern for man, that man should not be alone. But what about Jesus, right? Because Jesus is the clearest picture that we have of God. And so what was his main concern? Well, after Jesus' baptism and, and after he's tempted in the wilderness, uh, at this point of his life, we would say formally that this is the start of his ministry, Right? that he's done all of his preparation and now he's ready to start his career right, of ministry. Um, and the first thing he does is he gets 12 guys together and he starts what we know as the world's first life group. Right? <laughs> and that, that's just a shameless plug. I'm not saying that you should join a group or you should start a group. I'm just saying that's what Jesus did and we're just gonna go on. Uh, <laughs> But as he went around with his life group, as they lived life together, uh, he sought out people that were in pain, people that were alone, the kind of people that would say, no one cares, no one understands, no one is with me. And he acknowledged them. He sat with them. He cared for them. And Jesus did some remarkable things while he was living on this earth. He, he performed miracles, he preached sermons, but I think one of the most remarkable, overlooked life-changing things about Jesus is the people that he chose to sit with. This astounded those people. It astounded the rest of the people in the room that Jesus would choose to sit with them, to acknowledge them, to care for them. Rachel Held Evans says this, what makes the gospel offensive isn't who it keeps out, but who it lets in. I'm gonna say that again. What makes the gospel offensive isn't who it keeps out, it's who it lets in. Often our, our offense, what we're offended by, is rooted in what makes us uncomfortable. And this is an uncomfortable thing, right? Sitting with, acknowledging the kind of people that would say, no one cares. That would say, no one is with me. It's messy to do this, right? If we chose to live like Jesus in this way, it would change us. It would affect us. And when we choose sympathy, when we, when we choose, I'm gonna keep you at an arm's length, that's easy. That's not as offensive when you say, oh, we don't have a ministry for that. Or I, don't, I, I see what you're going through, but I don't know how to deal with that. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. And we create this distance. When, when we follow the model of Jesus, it's I, I see what you're going through. I'm, I'm not quite there, but help me get there. Right? Help me feel what you're feeling. Help me experience what you're experiencing because I want to be with you. We also tend to overlook the fact that Jesus had his own community of brokenness. We see in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, the, the night before Jesus was, was executed, he's with his life group, and they're, they're in the garden, and he says this to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Jesus was able to hold his own pain. To say, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And this is my experience. This is my pain. But he was able to express it and to share it with his friends to say, stay with me. Please stay with me. Jesus is the ultimate example of empathy. Because as God, God himself never had to experience pain never had to experience suffering, but he chose to join us in our experience of brokenness. 
He chose to experience poverty and pain and loneliness, even death. But then here's the greatest news. They chose to join us so that he could bring hope to our brokenness and that, that he could make a way for us to move forward together. As he was broken in his death, and then as he was restored in his resurrection, Jesus showed us that in him, hope can be born out of brokenness. Brokenness can be transformed into hope. And when we embrace the brokenness and the hope of Jesus and choose to form a community of brokenness in him, it becomes a community of hope. And, and if we want to live like Jesus, if we want to form this community of hope together, he gives us a model. It's the way that he interacts with people. Number one, acknowledge others. This is sometimes I wish someone out there would find me, right? The line from our song today. And some of you came into this room with that thought. I wish someone out there would find me. Maybe you're still thinking it right now. I wish that someone understood. I wish that someone would say hello today but just acknowledge that I'm here. And, and no offense to our greeter team, but imagine how powerful it would be if we didn't need a greeter team because our community acknowledged others so well. And it just begins with a hello or a good morning. Or if you wanna go next level, we missed you last week. Oh, you noticed, right? <laughs> I got caught. <laughs> uh, no, just acknowledge those around you. Just say something to acknowledge the presence of others and then sit with them. Literally, this is choosing to practice empathy rather than sympathy because I believe it, it's far more helpful to offer your long-term presence than to just give presence. And we look for those quick fixes like, oh, you're crying, can I give you a tissue? Or can I set up a meal train for you? Or can I give you some money? Or can I give you a sandwich, right? But so often, what people are desiring is our long-term presence rather than that quick fix. Because often when we give a present, we say, oh, I cared, and that's measurable, I gave something, and now I'm gonna go back to work, I'm gonna go back to my routine. That's not letting it affect you. That's caring and move on. Empathy affects you. You're in it for the long haul. So invite someone over for dinner. I know that's old-fashioned, but maybe that's the step. Invite someone for dinner. Or maybe invite someone to sit with you at church. Maybe that's a simple step. Just choose to truly be with people. Don't settle for being around people. Next is seek to understand their story and let it affect you. Just listen. No assumptions, no judgment, no problem-solving. Just be curious. See, I want to understand your experience. I want to understand your pain. And that's what it looks like to hold someone's pain. That's what it looks like to share pain. And then lastly, move forward together. This is when we get rid of the shoulds. We get rid of the at least, right? Uh, we get rid of all those statements. And instead of saying, hey, you should go to a grief group. I think that would be really good for you saying, can we find a group to go to together? I would love to join you in that. Or invite someone to go to your group. Invite them to be a part. Instead of saying, you should get over it and move on. It's about time. Because we know 
There's no such thing as moving on. Saying, as long as it takes, I'm gonna be with you. And when you're ready to move forward, I wanna be with you there too. I'm in this with you. Last week, Pastor Aaron shared with us the story of Ruth, who's a perfect example of what we're talking about here. When devastation hit their home, Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, it's time to move on. Just get on with your life. I'm gonna do my thing and you move on. And, and Orpah reluctantly did so. She moved on. But I wanna notice again Ruth's response. Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Your pain will be my pain. Your tears will be my tears. Your suffering will be my suffering. Your joy will be my joy. Your laughter will be my laughter. See, when we look at this radical empathy from Ruth, we see this life-changing, altering decision where she's saying, your story is going to affect mine. And by modeling this form of, of radical empathy where we acknowledge and we sit with and we seek to understand and we move forward together, we can allow Jesus to transform our community of brokenness into a community of hope. Now, we're about to share in communion together and as we do, I want you to be very aware of those in the room with you. Recognize that this isn't something that we do alone. We do it when we gather. We do it when we are together. And I also want you to recognize that when we take the bread that represents Jesus's broken body and the juice that represents Jesus's blood, we're recognizing that he chose to join us in our community of brokenness and to transform our brokenness into hope. I'd like to close with a thought from the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Let him or her who cannot be alone beware of community. Alone you stood before God when he called you. Alone you had to answer the call. Alone you had to struggle and pray and alone you will die and give an account to God. You cannot escape from yourself for God has singled you out. But the reverse is also true. Let him or her who is not in community beware of being alone. Into the community you were called. The call was not meant for you alone. In the community of the called, you bear your cross, you struggle, you pray. You are not alone, even in death. And on the last day, you will be only one member of the great congregation of Jesus Christ. You are not alone. Let's pray together. Lord, we recognize that you have chosen to join this community of brokenness. Lord, a community where we're able to hold our pain, to recognize that I have this pain, this experience that is mine, and yet choose to share it with others. Would we be a community like that, like you showed us as possible? Lord, we thank you that you have shown us how brokenness can be transformed into hope. How when we are broken, we are not lost. Lord, we're just awaiting transformation. 
Lord, will you bring hope into our lives? Would we be a community that acknowledges one another, that sits with one another, that seeks to understand each other and moves forward together? We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.